This forum is part of the City Club's Health Equity Series, sponsored by the St. Luke's Foundation and the Sisters of Charity Foundation. We are grateful for their generous support. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland in Public Square. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here, also a proud member. And it's my pleasure to introduce today the second forum in a four-part series here on Public Square, a love letter to an anti-racist Cleveland. Here with me today is Mark Joseph. He's the Leona Beavis and Marguerite Hainem Associate Professor of Community Development at the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel School of Applied Social Sciences at Case Western Reserve University. He's also the founding director of the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities. Now, Mark and I have known each other for about 15 years, I think, and, uh, and he's, a, he's a friend, someone I've long wanted to have a, do a keynote here on the City Club stage, and it took like a year to convince him to do this, so I'm super excited about it. His research focuses, as many of you know, on mixed income development as a strategy for promoting urban equity and inclusion. He's the co-author of the award-winning book, Integrating the Inner City, The Promise and Perils of Mixed Income Public Housing Transformation, and co-editor of a massive and wonderful collection of essays called What Works to Promote Inclusive, Equitable, and Mixed Income Communities, which is published by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And all of it, all of the essays, in fact, are available for free online at the website of the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities. Mark's community development work has been increasingly centered on the work of anti-racism. And I wanted to say a quick word about, about that. Um, in 2015, author and Anisfield Wolf Book Award winner uh, Marlon James spoke at the City Club. And he touched on the difference between being non-racist and being anti-racist. What he said essentially is that not being a racist is passive. And in the past, we've kind of elevated that to some sort of moral value, that passivity non-action as a legitimate stance. Anti-racism, however, he said, is something else. It's active. It's not just a stand you take, but it's what you choose to do. And so Mark has this idea that the city, the whole city, all of Cleveland, including, the, uh, including the, what's beeping behind me, could be an anti-racist city. And he wanted to title our event today, A Love Letter to an Anti-Racist Cleveland. That's why we're doing that. So let's get started. Let's hear this love letter. And please, let's start by giving Dr. Mark Joseph a round of applause. Welcome, Mark. All right. Thank you, Dan. So Mark, um, why did you want to title this event, A Love Letter to an Anti-Racist Cleveland? So first of all, thank you for having me here. And can we just take a moment and appreciate, we are here in person, everybody. Woo! Wow. Woo! How great is it to be out post-pandemic, and we've got some hearty souls here. Let's try and make a little more noise so the audience can hear you and know that we've got folks who brave this wind and weather. So let's hear from the audience. All right. That actually sounds like more people. That does. Than sound, that, does. that sounds good. That sounds Very good. impressive. And I, I want to off the top say a special thanks to my wife, Melani, who's probably responsible for half your listening audience today. She's been <laughs> getting the word out. So thank you to thank Melani, you. who's who's here with us. So as I thought about what we would talk about together, um, the reason for this love letter to an anti-racist Cleveland is what an incredible moment we are in together, right, as a society. We're coming out of this 18-month pandemic period. I mean, an experience we will remember all our lives as something shared by every single person on the planet. And I think one of the questions is, how do we leverage that moment? We've all experienced the same thing. 
how do we avoid letting that slip away? And I already feel it happening. So part of what I wanted to do was challenge us to say, folks, we're in this incredible moment. We've had this shared experience. And how do we avoid going back to business as usual? So we've got post-pandemic. We are a year out from this incredible moment of racial reckoning in our country. And again, it's another moment that, I, I don't know about you all, I feel slipping away a little bit, mm -hmm. right? We had the murder of George Floyd, we had the murder of Breonna Taylor, and we had all these statements, right? There was this statement frenzy of what folks and organizations and corporations were going to do. And here we are a year out, and I literally would ask folks, for those of you who made those statements, a year later, what is the status of that? What has become of that? How often have you read that statement, right? So a year out from racial reckoning, post-pandemic, we got this moment where crazily our stock market is kind of going through the roof. So we have people in incredible suffering coming out of pandemic, while yet there's incredible wealth being made. So there's all these resources. And then speaking of resources, we have resources flowing from the federal government to our cities. You had a panel just last week, kicked off Public Square saying, how do we spend a billion dollars in Cuyahoga County? So it's this incredible moment. So as I thought about what I wanted to talk about, it's how do I encourage myself and all of us to step up to this moment? So why anti-racism? Why a love letter? Well, let me start with anti-racism and then come to love letter. Okay. Because anti-racism where I started, right? If we're gonna talk big and we're gonna talk seriously about what it's gonna take for Cleveland and the Cleveland region to truly be sustained and competitive as a region, we have to focus on race. We have to acknowledge the history of racism that's created where we are today, one of the most segregated cities in America. And so anti-racism, the question of how do we address and confront anti-racism, I think has to be front and center. Why a love letter? When most of us think about race or engage in a conversation on racism, I think where we go is either, either to fear, most of us probably to fear, I don't wanna be in this conversation, this is not gonna go well, this is not something I wanna talk about, I've seen how this plays out, or to many of us, rage and anger and despair, and I'd say that's certainly true for myself. And so I wanna be clear, even though my framing might be a love letter, that does not mean that this is not also something that I feel keenly in terms of anger and rage about where we are. But I was listening to a podcast that had Emmanuel Acho, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's got a book and a podcast that's titled Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, which I feel like is a lot of the conversations I have with folks about <laughs> race and our future. But he's this incredible guy, played pro football, brilliant speaker, brilliant thinker. And what he said that really struck me is he said, when we have these conversations about race and racism, we have to have them with love and grace. And I feel like he was really calling us into our better selves. I'm not sure where we get if we enter into those conversations with fear and rage. And so as I thought about it, I said, you know what? My personal quest, and on the one hand, this is very personal. It's just a charge to myself. What's my love letter? What's my commitment to our city? And what could I call others to say, and I invite the audience today, both right here in front of me and listening, if you were writing your love letter to an anti-racist Cleveland, what would you write? So for me, there's two parts to the letter. 
The first part is really deep gratitude. I am so grateful to this city. So for me and my wife, 15 years now in Cleveland, we consider ourselves Clevelanders at this point. Clevelanders would not consider ourselves Clevelanders <laughs> because I don't know how long you have to be here to get that magical acceptance. Uh, but Clevelanders are serious. If you can't name where you went to high school in Cleveland, you're not a Clevelander. But this city has given us so much. We've raised our kids here. So many things to love about Cleveland that we'll get into. So part of the letter is about gratitude. Gratitude for all of those who came before us and have provided us with this city that is revitalizing, is turning around. Look at us. We're sitting right now in this gorgeous public square that didn't just happen by itself. It had to be planned and executed. So part of it is gratitude. But the other part of the love letter, Dan, is a call to the city as its best self. What could we be if we really set our sights on being a city where literally every single citizen was valued for their potential to contribute? That's not the city we live in today. So let's, I want to I dig in there because, um, because this is the, the, the stuff that I think people came to hear, that people want to hear, that you are uniquely positioned to offer kind of a roadmap. Um, it's, you can get a lot of people to say, yes, I want to do anti-racist work, or yes, let's dismantle structural racism. But when it comes to how, it's a, it, that's a much more difficult question. I've, always, I, I've long been of the mind, and you and I have talked about this, that you just choose, everybody should choose their work, right? Should choose what their work is, how they're going to lean in, and, and, and where they're going to put their weight. Um, but I think you have some more specific things in mind besides just sort of letting everybody choose their work. Absolutely. So part of the reason for this framing of the love letter was kind of motivational. Mm -hmm. And this call to what would it mean for us to declare that we will be an anti-racist city? It's kind of a thought exercise that we can have together today. One of this moment of opportunity is that here we are about to have a new mayor and select a new mayor for the first time in almost a couple decades, right? Huge moment of opportunity. So my thought exercise for us all is what if that next mayor, and I'm literally appealing for the mayoral candidates, to declare that city, that Cleveland will be, let's just say it, the first anti-racist city in America. And so how is that different from that. declaring racism is a public health crisis, Excellent. which has been done last year? Which was, by the way, done a year ago Right, And so we've got some interesting questions we could ask about what's happened in the past year since we declared that. I think what's different is declaring racism as a public health puts one dimension on the issue, health, which I think is very, very helpful because it makes us think about racism in a different way. Wow, that really affects people's health. When I talk about Cleveland as an anti-racist city, I'm talking about anti-racism infusing every single facet of city life. So I'm talking not just about health or the economy or education or the criminal justice system or who we hang out with, who we spend time with, what we do in our places of work. I'm talking about across the board. Cleveland is an anti-racist city would be one where we would experience anti-racism in every facet of our lives. It would also be one, because when we declare, when the city council declares racism a public health issue, again, 
fantastic move, and I applaud Councilman Griffin and all the others who are behind that, Councilman uh, President Kelly. But what it does is it allows us to then look at the city council and say, what are they going to do? It allows us to sit in this moment and say, it's been a year, city council. What have you done? My vision of Cleveland as an anti-racist city is that it calls upon every single one of us. It calls upon us across sectors. So it's not something that we could point to government or point to the corporate sector or point to philanthropy or point to education or point to our civic spaces. But Cleveland as an anti-racist city is infused across all of that. So you asked a moment ago, what would it take? And maybe we can shift yeah, into Yeah, well, that. I mean, I think you... I think the first place that, that, you, that you and I have talked about that would you need a shared language, right? Well, actually... A shared vision. Exactly. So, Sorry. number one... Ahead. He did. Yeah, I went to number See, two first. I, I've given him the roadmap, so he's, <laughs> he's excited about the shared language. And we're going to spend a lot of time on shared language, so we'll get there. Three ingredients to anti-racist city. Number one, shared vision and will. Number two, shared language. And number three, collective everyday action. Vision and will, language, action. So vision and will, you could see that coming from the next mayor of the city, if the next mayor of the city chooses to do that. And, um, and this has certainly been a part of the conversations that, that citizens have heard from, uh, heard from the candidates, but none has said we need to make Cleveland an anti-racist city. Many of them have spoken about the important work of anti-racism. Um, where do you see, where else would you see that vision and will coming from? Who, who else needs to step up? Yeah, so again, politicians, mayor, city council, county council, um, but also government, but then other sectors. And I think it's going to be very, very important for our private sector, our corporations, to get fully behind this. And we may talk about the Greater Cleveland Partnership in a moment. And sure, so let's the talk podcast about, well, about the, the roundtable. <laughs> well, because I'm still listing others. <laughs> our faith institutions right? Should be on board with that. People talk about Sunday as the most segregated time in our entire week. So our faith institutions need to be on board, and there's some wonderful examples of, of that. I hope I get to talk about uh, one of the churches we attend, Forest Hill Church, in a moment, because they are a great example of this. But the vision needs to come from all of these different sectors. And I think part of the problem with anti-racist work is we very quickly look to others for what they need to do. And so part of that shared vision is literally the shared part. Do we have a shared vision that we've spoken to? Have we really thought about what it would look like if we were living in a city that called itself an anti-racist city? Can I we checked just pause, out to see pause if, there for a sure. second. Here we are in Public Square. How would our experience here at this moment be different if Cleveland was an anti-racist city? So we would be walking into our public and social spaces more keenly attuned to who's there and who's not there, right? So there's a lot of settings that my wife and I will walk into, and we live that way, and I would say most people of color live that way, keenly attuned to walking into a room and saying who's here. I think, unfortunately, there are far too many white people who walk into a room and a space that's all white, and it feels normal. It still just feels normal. So we would walk in a public square, and there would be an, a sense of who's here and who's not here. The second sense would be, do we, when we're in social spaces, lean out of our comfort zones a bit? So I think most of us walk into a, so a social space, and we look for where we think we will be comfortable, right? So for example, looking over on that side over there, I see mostly white folks sitting on that side, right? 
not to call any of them out in any particular way, but if we were leaning Except into that you this, just did. Okay, but you asked me to be specific. <laughs> yeah, and I appreciate that. Walking in, we would say, okay, that space looks a little homogenous. Can I join it? Right? Rather than my natural instinct, which might be, look, oh, the black folks are over here, my natural instinct would be to go over there. In an anti-racist city, we would all be doing that. Right? So it wouldn't be just me. Might be I'm checking out Peter Witt in the crowd. Might be Peter might go over and say, you know what? I'm going to lean into that space. I'm going to go sit in that space. And if for some reason there's someone over there who's chosen that space because that felt more comfortable, I'm going to go over, back to uncomfortable conversation with the black man, Give them an opportunity, right? So in a public space, in social spaces, I think we're very comfortable finding our comfort zone, which means that we end up being at places that might be diverse, right? You go to my kid's school district at lunchtime in Shaker Heights, walk into the lunchroom, and what are you going to see played out in that social space? Folks sitting in homogenous tables, even though the whole space is diverse. So I think part of it is how do we kind of, you know, encourage ourselves, build the muscle. People talk right. about building anti-racist muscle mm -hmm. to lean out of our comfort zones and lean into discomfort in a little bit of a way. Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative talks about, he talk, he's got a whole recipe sort of similar. Two of the things that have always stuck with me about what he says is uh, getting comfortable with your discomfort and also getting proximate. Yeah. And proximate is, right, being around other people. Because I think part of that is when we stay in homogenous spaces, then we're allowed to just work in our assumptions, perceptions, stereotypes of the other. Mm -hmm. It becomes easier and easier to fall into that pathway of believing things that you haven't experienced for yourself. Mm -hmm. The part about Brian Stevenson and getting proximate is learning and figuring out for yourself, experiencing for yourself how others, and surprising yourself, right? about how folks you might have thought were very different from you, actually you may have more common ground with. But I think today in America, we still have far too much time when we're not leaning into our discomfort and giving ourselves a chance to be surprised, right? Part of what we'll talk about in a moment is curiosity. And how can we be more curious about the other? I think we're sitting with a sense that we know the other. We've heard about the other. We have a sense how that's gonna go. And I think the only way we're going to work toward being an anti-racist city is by moving out of that. By the way, one city in America, Riverside, California, has made legislation to name itself an anti-racist city. Really? So we would not be the first. Another city, uh, which uh, is in England, Oxford, England, has also passed legislation to be an anti-racist city. Fun fact, that's actually where I was born. So for those of you who don't realize that I'm actually an immigrant kid, came to the U.S. when I was 10. I didn't know that about Well, there you, you go, Dan. And you've known me for 15 years. <laughs> so Oxford, England, city of my birth, has named itself an anti-racist city. I would never have put Oxford and Riverside, California in the same category. There you go. I love it. Um, you alluded earlier to the business community. How would the business community operate differently? I realize this is huge, right? The business community is huge. But but how, what would be the, the hallmarks of an anti-race, of a business community in an anti-racist city? Yeah, so, well, you know, down the road in the conversation, we'll talk a little bit about this framework, but I'll name it now. Person, role, system. So this is something, if, maybe if you walk away with nothing else today, walk away with person, role, system. And I know many of you have heard about it before. You can Google it, but it's a framework that's being very used in the kind of social change space to talk about operating at multiple levels. 
at the personal level, so a lot of this work has to be individual. At the role level, what are the roles of individuals within their organizations? And what are the roles of those organizations? And then at the systems level. So for the corporations, the businesses, they would be applying exactly that framework. Number one, person. They would be thinking, okay, literally the people in this corporation, the CEO, CFO, COO, what steps are they taking? How are they modeling anti-racist behavior? What are they reading? What are they listening to? What are they talking about? How are they acting? What have they named for themselves that they are leaning into as part of their racial equity journey, their anti-racist journey? What is happening internally in that company to provide the members of that business community, that staff, opportunities to be learning, sharing. Now, this is some of the work that is happening. I mean, that's what's exciting. You and I were talking before. What we have going on our favor here in Cleveland is these Racial Equity Institute workshops, REI workshops. At this point, I know a while ago we were up to 5,000. We're probably moving closer to 10,000 soon. People in Cleveland who have been part of one of these two-day or half-day workshops. Right? We should give credit to the Third Space Action Lab for Absolutely. their work there and to Cleveland Neighborhood Progress before Third Space took it exactly. over. Exactly. Cleveland Neighborhood Progress kicked it off under the leadership of Joel Ratner, now under the leadership of Tanya Maness. Third Space Action Lab, our friends uh, Evelyn Burnett and Mordecai Cargill, now leading Third Space Action Lab, which is holding these workshops. If you haven't heard about them, please Google them, check them out, and figure out when you can be a part of it. So we do have workshops, trainings, exposure going on. What these businesses and other organizations need to be doing is what comes next. And I think that's where we're falling short. I think we're able to do those one-time, one-shot trainings. But I think when we talk about turning this into everyday action, everyday accountability, everyday continued learning, that's where our organizations and our businesses need to be providing a framework for themselves. The other thing that businesses need to be doing is thinking about what's their role in the broader system. And I think this is where it needs to be a balance of internal work for leadership, executives, and staff, external work in terms of how, what kind of coalitions are we in with our fellow corporations. Again, Cleveland, uh, Greater Cleveland Partnership would be an example of one space that's pulling together. What is our role with the city? I mean, we're going to have an opportunity with a new mayor for businesses to kind of re-up, recommit, where is their standing as far as the future of the city of Cleveland, and how are they providing their resources, their space, their positioning, their voice to supporting the direction that city's going in. So there's a number of levels that businesses need to be operating at, and they need to be operating both internally and externally on that front. Mark, in these kinds of conversations, and you and I have talked about what is sort of referred to in shorthand as white fragility, um, the, the the tendency of some people who, who f and you talked about the fear that people approach that can approach these kinds of conversations for, through a lens of fear, through their own um, their own worries about what they will lose. And I want to ask you to sort of address that issue broadly. Like there, there are people who will hear this who will be like, "Oh, this is just more white guilt. This is more, you know, lefty, yada yada." And there's. And some will say, like, well, what's in it for me? But also, like, I mean, why? I, I don't know. There's a, there's a whole set of, of those kinds of issues that people who don't understand the world the way you do will, who, who will throw up kind of, like, obstacles to this. And I want to ask you to address that. No, I appreciate it. 
understandably, there will be many people who see this as a zero-sum game. If you gain, I lose. I've got to give up something. So basically, this conversation is all about what do I give up. And we have to be honest. I think we all need to give up something. I talked about getting out of our comfort zones. We're asking all of us to say we're going to get out of our comfort zones. All of us need to share our resources and time in a different way. Here's the key, I think. We will not be the Cleveland that we want to be unless all of us are thriving. We will be left behind, and I would say have been left behind by other cities because we were willing to let part of our city fall behind while other parts of our city thrived. So for those who are looking at this as a zero-sum game, the challenge, and this is where it comes down to vision, and our leaders, whether they be political leaders, corporate leaders, faith leaders, civic leaders, helping name for all of us that we only thrive together. That goes way more than just words and symbolism. That literally, Cleveland will not seize its moment. And here's the thing. Clevelanders can often get down on ourselves. Now, luckily, we all experienced together a fantastic NBA championship. So we've, we got... That off of our back. Oh, you mean when the Warriors blew a, a, a no, three-to-one lead? No, I don't. I mean when we <laughs> seized it from their hands and took it. All of us have experienced that. So we can't say that we don't win. We win. But I still think there's this sense that other cities have kind of this bright future, and that's behind us. When you take the long view, we sit on the body of one of the greatest amounts of fresh water on our planet. You cannot invent that. The world is moving in our direction. People are going to be wanting to live in a place like Cleveland, a region like Cleveland, where we don't have hurricanes, we don't have earthquakes, we don't have fires, we don't have all this other stuff going on. And our winters, it's a little bit kind of crazy, those experiencing it, they're warmer. We have kind of a blue sky that we see in our winters now. It's a little scary because of climate change. But the point is, Cleveland's best days are truly still ahead of it. But we will not seize those fully if those best days are for some of us and not for all. And so I think what we need to do is shift that conversation from what are you asking me to give up to we are asking you to seize a future that's going to be better for all of us. But that is going to require that we don't operate where we're leaving the value, we're leaving the potential contributions of the majority of our population on the sidelines because we're not fully educating them, we're not fully giving them access to employment, we're not giving them access to the best health, and so we do have to see this as a collective from which we all gain. We're talking with Mark Joseph. He's the uh, the founding director of the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities, and um, he teaches at Case Western Reserve University's Mandel School for Applied Social Sciences. And we're going to do get to the audience Q and A in just a second. If you have a question, we've got a microphone right here. If you don't want to go to the microphone, you can text your question to three three zero five four one five seven nine four. That's for all of you watching online. Three three zero five four one five seven nine four. And if you're on Twitter, you can tweet it at the City Club. And while we prepare for those questions, Mark, I have another question for you. Um, Cleveland occupies a certain space in the national imagination. Um, partly that's because of the uh, environmental journey that Cleveland has been on and the success we've found in, in, clean, in environmental cleanup and environmental justice. Partly that's because of the, of the challenges, the economic challenges we faced. 
But when it comes to race, there's also um, some really significant, we were the site of some very significant uprisings during the civil rights era. Um, we're also the, the, the home of the first black mayor of a major American city, Carl Stokes, the, the, you know, the really the apogee of, of black political power of that moment. And, um, and also uh, of Lou Stokes, his brother, who, who served as the first black congressman for the state of Ohio. And, and there's more, too. But, I mean, can you talk a little bit about what, why it would be not just important to Cleveland, but to the nation? Yeah, no, I love this question. And I want to get to shared language before we get to Shared Q&A. language. We'll, we'll get into that in a second. It felt like we touched on that. But. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I got, I got some money to throw out there on shared language. So hopefully we can get to that. <laughs> I mean, no, Lonnie, can, you, can you throw a net over this guy at all, <laughs> ever? No? <laughs> so really important, right? What we've just been talking about is why Cleveland should do this for ourselves. But I love this question, Dan, because as we go, I truly believe we can lead the nation, right? We are of a size and a positioning, not just Cleveland, not just Northeast Ohio, but the state of Ohio, where we have the attention of the nation, right? The nation is used to turning its eye to Cleveland. And as you mentioned, historically, first major uh, city to elect a black mayor, uh, and shout out to the Stokes family who remained very supportive uh, of, of Cleveland, particularly the Mandel School where I am. Uh, so really appreciative of their continued support. And Lou Stokes, as you know, uh, was a pillar uh, for our city, but also f- at Case Western Reserve and, and at the Mandel School. What we do here can gain national attention. What we prove here can model, and here's the thing, what's been fun over the past few years as we've been in Cleveland is watching folks come to Cleveland to learn about things we're doing. I'll throw out, for example, the work of Neighborhood Connections, Tom O'Brien. When I first came to Cleveland, that was a small grants program, Neighborhood Small Grants, and that was innovative. But it has now moved to the point where it is literally every neighborhood, grassroots engagement, folks meeting, and building connections in a whole different kind of way to create a bottom-up structure for our city. And we have cities across America who have come here to experience this, to go to a network night, a neighbor up night. Shout out to my friends, Bill Trainer, Frankie Blackburn, who helped develop that model that we brought here to Cleveland. So you're right, Dan. When we do this, with hope and optimism, uh, it won't just be about us. It'll be what we model as a mid-sized city for our peers, mid-sized cities, for the larger cities, and for smaller cities to emulate. Can we do shared language real quick? We can do shared language, but I want to see some questions coming in. I know Michael Patterson has one because he he always does because that's the role that he plays in our community. But go ahead. Shared language. Real real quick on shared language because the only way we will be an anti-racist city together is if we can effectively talk to each other about this work. Some of the language I'm going to throw out real quick, and the audience might want to come back to it in in Q&A. Three big words. Anti-racism, racial equity, and racial justice. It would really help if we mean the same thing when we say those terms. And I think today we don't. Dan, you already covered anti-racism, right? It's not enough to say you're not a racist. So Cleveland is an anti-racist city would have no one in Cleveland saying, I'm not a racist. I'm not part of the problem. Cleveland is an anti-racist city would have folks saying, I am an anti-racist. Here's what that means, and here's what I'm doing. It's not enough to be neutral. If you're neutral, you are flowing along with the racist river. You have to be anti-racist. Racial equity is a term that we've gotten comfortable with 
as we've talked about, thousands of people have gone through racial equity institutes. But as of last summer, we're now talking about racial justice. My fear is that we've just replaced racial equity with racial justice like those are interchangeable words. In my view, they are not. Racial equity for me is like racial anti-racism 1.0. Racial justice is like anti-racism 5.0. Racial equity is about making it even. How do we make it even, give everyone an even shot? Racial justice is about making it right. How do we make it right? All right, closing out my little soapbox around I just shared wanna, language. I just want to highlight the fact that you are obliquely pointing to repairing a situation, something some people refer to as reparations. Here we go. So I'm going to throw out eight words real quick. Four, when you think of racial equity, here are the four words I think of and I invite you to think about. And when you think of racial justice, here are the four words I think about, I invite you to think about. Racial equity, curiosity, structure, perception, and belonging. Curiosity, structure, perception, and belonging. We could talk about that if we have time. Racial justice, and you're going to see why I call this 5.0. Truth, healing, restitution. You just mentioned reparations. Restitution and power. Truth, healing, restitution, and power. In Cleveland, as an anti-racist city, we would be leaning in with curiosity, addressing structure, changing the narrative and perceptions, and focusing on belonging over othering. In Cleveland, as an anti-racist city, we would be speaking truth we would be promoting healing and acknowledging trauma. We would be providing restitution for past harms. And we would be shifting power. That would be my formula for Cleveland anti-racist city. Okay. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Let's give them a round of applause. We're now, uh, that was, you can make it louder for the folks in the back. <laughs> Mark Joseph, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you. That is, I, as you were talking, especially at this last part, I was like, oh, there's another three hours worth of conversation here. Um, but I'm pretty sure we're going to do the work of transcribing this conversation because I, I, I think it'd be worthwhile. Um, do we have any questions from the audience? Um, go ahead and, and step right up to the microphone, ma'am. Again, if you do have questions, you're invited to use the microphone. You can text your question to 330-541-5794, or you can tweet it at the City Club. Go ahead. Okay. First of all, yes, I am a native Clevelander. I can tell you my high school, elementary school, middle school, et cetera, and so forth. But my question is, um, when we talk about all of the diversity, all of the things that are going on and in the businesses, in uh, the churches, et cetera, and so forth. Yes, Cleveland is a very segregated city. So my question, I guess, would be, all of these things that are going on in the workplace, possibly the church, and so forth, but we go home to the same segregation. Um, so I'm saying, how, how does that work, or how does that expand it? And I guess I'm thinking about the younger people, perhaps we're talking about, because you know, knowing many of the younger people now, they seem to have a very different and diverse attitude than those who have, say, you know, like older and really, I guess you would say, set in their ways. So how does that work? And the other part of that is intended outcome. I could go sit 
where there are a group of, say, white people and so forth. But I guess my question is, why am I sitting there? That becomes the question. I mean, just to integrate, to say that I'm sitting there, or, you know, what's the intended outcome? Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for a number of things. Number one, for being here today, for that amazing question, for your friendship of my wife. This is one of my wife's recruits. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Great question, right? We have diversity. We have diversity workshops. We do this stuff at work, and then we go home, and many of us go home to segregated neighborhoods. But let's be honest, segregated social spaces, right? We had a close friend that we met early on in Cleveland, and we realized she, she mentioned that she was out at a conversation, and someone asked her, this is a white friend, had you ever had black people over to your house to dinner? And at first, she immediately was like, of course. And then she thought about it, and thought about it, and thought about it, and realized she had never had a black person over to dinner at her house. And this is living in a diverse community. So I love this question, because it goes back to the person role system. We have to think about on the personal level. You can't just think about doing this work, this anti-racist work, when you're in your workplace and there is the training or the you know, work process. You have to think about what this means in your personal space. I also love the part of your question about adults and parents versus the youth. Because as adults, I think we tend to be more set in our ways. We tend to be a little bit behind the curve, as your question proposed. Youth are more open and active and connecting on a number of levels, not just racial diversity, but many forms of diversity. How are we thinking about our social spaces? How are we thinking about who are we having over to dinner? Who are we going out to dinner with? How are we using our social time? And I'm not asking anyone to transform overnight, but I do think in Cleveland as an anti-racist city, one weekend a month, each Cleveland resident is thinking, what is something I can do this weekend that is out of my normal space, that's going to take me into a different... I mean, one thing I would love is for folks to visit other folks' churches or faith institutions, temples. I mean, these are actually welcoming spaces when you go, right? That's the culture of those spaces. But we get very comfortable and we go to the same place every Sunday. So what if you just leaned in once a month and went to a different place to experience it? I think it would be an amazing discovery to see what you would learn being in a different kind of faith space. So I love the question. We absolutely need to take it into the social space. Um, I, I like the idea of a worship exchange program. Um, I think you missed the opportunity to talk about developing mixed income communities. <laughs> I did. <laughs> absolutely. Nice catch. <laughs> That's why Taryn Gress, our strategic director at our center, was looking at me like, I was like, why is Taryn glaring at me? It's like, Mark, talk about mixed income communities. Yeah, if we're living in these segregated neighborhoods, we're not going to get to being an anti-racist city. And so the work of our center, thanks for the plug, Dan, and take a look at our website, if you will, National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities. We focus every day on what are strategies, what are tactics to promote neighborhoods, buildings, housing complexes that are home to a mix of people, it gets back to the point you raised from Brian Stevenson, right? If we're going to be proximate, we can't only be proximate in our workplaces. We also want to be proximate in other spaces that we hang out. We talk about our home space. We also talk about third spaces. You mentioned third space action lab earlier. It's all about those social spaces, community forums where we come together. And so how can we make sure 
that we are doing the policy work, the practice work, the real estate development work, the transformation initiative work as we have in the city to produce neighborhoods and spaces where folks from different backgrounds are able to live together and interact with each other. And I think I, from my understanding of your research that a key piece of that isn't just building different kinds of housing, but how you, but how you support that different kind of housing through different kinds of programs in the community things that are opportunity, events and, and, uh, and, and other sort of social structures that are opportunities that really bring people together. Yes, and it, this reminds me, there was a part of the wonderful question that I left out, which is why go into the homogenous space? What's the, what's the point? So I'm just going over there. Is that just to kind of prove a point? So this gives me a chance to come back to my racial equity frame. Curiosity, structure, perception, belonging. You're going there, if you can, with some curiosity. Who are these people in this space? What are they doing over here in this space? What might I learn in this space? How might I invite some curiosity for them? Structure. You're going there to change the structure of the moment. If the structure of the room was some people sit one place, some people sit another place, you've disrupted that structure. The last two are really important. Perception. The people in that space may have a certain perception of people who look like you. By you going into that space and just being your awesome self, they will have an opportunity to experience your awesome self and maybe just change that narrative they had in their heads. And particularly for black males who are feared in our society, probably most feared at every level, when we are able to give a change of that perception, shift the narrative, flip the script as we say, right? It goes a long way because it's amazing how often we actually interact with people who've never had a conversation with a black guy. Like, it, you just have an opportunity all the time, on the bus, at the ball game, wherever you are, to step into a space and change perception. And then finally, and you might guess what it's all about, belonging versus othering. When you go into that space, you are actually appropriating that space and saying, I'm not gonna allow that to be an othering space. I'm going to appropriate the space as somewhere I belong. I belong in this space, and I'm going to be a part of it. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, easy for you to say. There's a bunch of introverts out here who are like, what? No way. Anyway, we have another question, I think. Yes, sir, you're an immigrant yourself. How do you see immigrants and refugees figuring into your equation? Awesome question. How do we see immigrants and refugees focusing into this question? And I see another uh, friend immigrant there, Kwame Bachwe, who at some point uh, might weigh in, uh, in on this conversation. So Michael, thanks for mentioning that yes, I am an immigrant as I outed myself earlier. Many of you are probably like, whoa, never knew that about Mark. So a couple ways to go with this question. Immigrants and refugees have made a decision to come here to seek opportunity. There is a leaning into the future a leaning into opportunity that comes with immigrants and refugees. There is an incredible value and resource in that. However, we allow our racism, spoken or unspoken, to lean into othering and to suggest that they don't necessarily belong like everyone else and to lean into the zero-sum game. Something that they do is gonna take away from us, right? as opposed to seeing the incredible value of having a set of folks who are seeking opportunity, sleeved rolls up, ready to do what it takes to make something different. Incre they're gold. 
in a city like Cleveland. So that's number one. On the darker side, and excuse the pun, immigrants and refugees to this country, and I had this choice, quickly face a choice of who do you stand with? Who are you going to be with? Where are you going to sit? What group? And immigrants and refugees quickly get a sense of the racial hierarchy in this country. Quickly get a sense of who's at the bottom, which neighborhoods are at the bottom, which social space is at the bottom, and immigrants and refugees, and it's hard to blame them, lean in the direction of how do I join those spaces that are valued, right? We haven't mentioned white supremacy yet. If we're going to be an anti-racist city, we have to be comfortable saying the term white supremacy. Maybe that should have been one of my big four terms. Anti-racism, racial equity, racial justice, and white supremacy. White supremacy has set up this hierarchy where white people, white appearing people, white bodied people, to use a term of the day, are at the top. So immigrants and refugees naturally say, I'm going to lean that way. What we have to do is have the engagement, have the work, have the momentum as a city where we don't force immigrants and refugees to make that kind of choice. Where we say there is value in all of our people, in all of our communities, and invite our refugees and our immigrants to be a part of all of those. So Global Cleveland, shout out to Joe Simperman, really, really, really important work. But let's make sure we're having those difficult conversations naming these realities of the choice that our racist city, our racist system sets up for us so that we don't have to make these choices about which part of the hierarchy am I going to aspire to and which part of the hierarchy am I, am I going to lean away from. Let's have another question. I'm real nervous about this question. I wrote it down. Um, so I, I appreciate Get close everything. to the mic. Oh, sorry. I can't believe I have to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to pulling it away from you. So um, I appreciate everything you said, and I think that it is a great next step in a lot of the Racial Equity Institute trainings that many of us have gone through. I guess the, the question, though, comes in, most of the, the civic leaders we have who are non-elected leaders don't live in the city of Cleveland. I grew up in Shaker. I say I'm from Cleveland, but I'm not. And how do we, like, without people living in the city, how do we do the trust building and neighboring and relationship building that needs to happen to get to some of these conversations and be able to be comfortable in having some of these conversations with black men that is required. But, you know, I now live in the city, but when I come to have this conversation with somebody who's not making that same investment, who's not sending their kids to Cleveland schools because Cleveland schools aren't good enough for their kids, how do I start that relationship and that conversation with somebody without necessarily being able to trust them because they go home to a suburb where these aren't necessarily the issues? Love it. Great question. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. So hopefully everyone heard the question. So when these folks who don't live in Cleveland, who have chosen, chosen to be part of the dynamic that's been for decades, right, that opportunity has flowed away for the center city, when they're in Boston or Phoenix or L.A. or Atlanta and someone asks them where they live, what do they say? They say Cleveland. Whether they're from Chagrin or Chagrin Falls or Solon or Bayfield Heights or whatever, they say they live in Cleveland. 
so this may just be Mark being glass half full, but I think it's kind of where we have to start, being asset-based. That's important. Why do they identify with Cleveland when they're in Los Angeles? There's something about that. There's a connection. So I think part of the answer to the question is move away from this either or, us, them, I'm in the city, you're in the suburbs, you made this choice. Move toward a we, which is this is a regional issue. We sink or swim as a region. Our central city is critical to the region, as are our inner ring suburbs and our outer suburbs. So part of that vision and will that would start with county leaders, mayor, and others is to name this as a regional conversation. And there's been numerous conversations about how fragmented a region we are, right? But the question really does get down, I love it, to the kind of person level. We talked about person role system. At a personal level, what would it mean for you to get beyond, personally, you and your family and your friends and your peer network, out of your city suburb frame? Where would you spend your time differently if you got out of that frame? How would you have conversations differently? The other point about the folks who are living in the suburbs is they do come to the city. They come in for the ball games. They come in for the arts and culture. They come in to hang out at Public Square. Maybe some of them are here today with us, right? A, do we make sure that they are welcome coming in? B, goes back to what we talked about earlier. Do we make sure that those spaces when they come in are spaces where we are mixing? Are spaces where they are invited to come into that space and connect with the folks who are here in the city, as opposed to come into that space, enjoy whatever larger thing is going on, but sit in their homogenous grouping and go back to the suburbs without ever having changed the narrative, felt a sense of belonging. So I think there's work that we can do in those spaces. I want to give a quick shout out to a friend of mine, David Heller, who is president of the NRP group, major real estate development company, not only in our city, but in the country, one of the largest uh, affordable housing providers. And David, for those of you who know him and know his company, the, the NRP group, recently made a major move Taryn and I visited the NRP group in their suburban setting about five, six, seven years ago. David moved the group downtown and said, we're not going to sit on the outside of our city. We're going to be part of moving in. We're going to be part of that dynamic. And I know it was not easy for David and his colleagues to say to that team at the NRP group, you are now going to figure out how to get all the way downtown for your meeting. And unfortunately, we've had social distancing, but we, I, hopefully they are now coming back uh, to, to downtown. And so I think that's part of the dynamic that is going in the exactly the right direction. And so there are people making that decision to reinvest in the city. I think that our next mayor should make that one of their top talking points, is a return to the city, but also making one of their starting point, talking points that wherever you are in the region, you are part of grave, Greater Cleveland's quest to be an anti-racist space, an anti-racist city, an anti-racist region. Thank you. Got another question? You know, you've raised so many points that I probably have a million questions. But I'm a native Clevelander, and I live in Shaker Heights. And I guess we would say that living in that I'm a, right now, a, I'm not a racist, but I'm not an anti-racist. And I don't, th it, it brings up to the point of what happens educationally wise. We start in the elementary schools in Shaker Heights and the kids are great integrators. 
for years, my kids all went to school for years. By the time they get to the high school, this isn't a new phenomenon. The time they get to the high school, they have separated apart. Hasn't the educational system, even in a community that's supposedly so liberal, hasn't that let us down? I mean, it's not something that's going to happen overnight, but we've even the city of Shaker Heights, which has this bastion, they have to declare themselves to be anti-racist and actually do something. And I, I appreciate knowing about the educational and the municipal actions that a city like even Shaker Heights could take. You might just pause for a second as the siren goes by. We're letting the siren go by for the listening audience. Go ahead. So thank you, sir, for your question. Uh, my wife is, out there is probably is, the last is, question, is, by the way. Oh wow! Yeah, I know. And we have another hour. Is that is that <laughs> is that correct? Oh, wait, wait, okay. We'll have one more question. It appears. Okay. One more hour? No, one more question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so my wife out there is smiling uh, because you've just named our experience in the city. Moved here from Chicago 15 years ago. A big part of our excitement about moving to Cleveland was Cleveland neighborhoods, Cleveland opportunities. But also, we had read and heard about the city of Shaker Heights. As you just said, Bastion, when there was op opportunities 50 years ago for Shaker Heights to go the way of other suburbs, they said, we are going to be racially integrated. They've achieved the racial integration, but not racial inclusion. And we certainly could talk about this for a very long time. Let me just say, there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done. Our kids have gone through that experience, two of them now in college, of going through and that moment where you have to make a choice. And suddenly, are you going to be in advanced placement classes, which means you're going to be separated from kids who look like you? I think one example, just one of many that Shaker Heights is doing right now, is do working away from tracking and walking away from pulling out and implementing the International Baccalaureate Program, but making it available to all. So thinking about how can we have opportunities to have the best possible resources, academics, and teaching, but it's available to everyone. It's not tracked. It's not for certain students, right? So that's one of many, many, many examples. Uh, and I do think Shaker Heights is one of many districts that is pushing into that uh, future. You're absolutely right. In some ways, it's a disappointment because you say, how could we be here 60 years later? For those of you who read the Washington Post article recently about Shaker Heights and still having these issues, it's heartbreaking in some ways. But I still firmly believe that there's ways in which Shaker Heights and Cleveland can demonstrate progress on these issues that can be models to other places in our region, other places in our country. Thank you. Last question. All right, really quickly. It's a, it's a bridge to what this gentleman, there you go, what that gentleman just said. So based on what's happening currently at the uh, state level, with critical race theory being on the line in terms of the House Bill, I may have these bills wrong, House Bill 322 and maybe Senate Bill or House Bill 327, where they're promoting that you, they do not want you to talk about any type of, you know, even racial equity or racial justice. Based on your four-pronged approach on the racial justice, when you talked about power, my question to you is what action steps might we want to take to kind of address this in the moment, because these bills are like literally in process or being proposed currently um, at the state level. So is there anything you might offer based on your theory around power, dealing with white supremacy, um, that we can take to address this in real time? Absolutely, thanks Peter for the question. 
Critical race theory. So a few of the words I would go back to that I use, you, you mentioned power, and I'll, I'll get there. Curiosity. How many people in this critical race theory debate are even ask, are curious about it? We're all making up our minds about critical race theory. Do we even know what it is? Right? Or are we relying on what someone else has told us that it's a bad thing? Perception. We have a perception of critical race theory as this scary thing that we need to stay away from. And in my racial justice framework, the first word is truth. Really, that's what critical race theory is about. It's about seeking truths and realizing, and I said truths parallel, that there are multiple truths in any situation. Critical race theory just asks us to say, we've been taught one single truth. We have one single truth in our textbooks very often. And very often, it misses other truths. And very often, it's not factual. And so how can we in our conversation? So what I would say we need to do right now, and each of us can do, is find someone in your social space, your sphere of influence, family member, peer member, person in your workspace who is anti-critical race theory. Ask them what they think it means. <laughs> Have a conversation with them about why is it such a bad thing to want our children in our schools and our college universities to be exposed to multiple truths. If we're gonna be global citizens, and once we leave this country, we know that other folks have other truths. If we're not prepared and skills, skilled to operate, this goes back to immigrants, to operate in the situation of multiple truths, we are going to fail on this globe and in this planet. Do you not want your children to be prepared to go anywhere in this world and be able to function with people who come from very different backgrounds? Don't, who wouldn't want that? The world is coming to us and we need to go to the world. So right now, Find someone in your social space who has a problem with critical race theory and lean into that difficult conversation with curiosity, shifting to perception, and trying to get to a different kind of truth about what it even really means. Dr. Mark Joseph of the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities and the Mandel School for Applied Social Sciences with a love letter to an anti-racist Cleveland. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much, Mark Joseph. Thank you very much. Thanks, folks, for being here today. I'm just going to wrap this up with a few notes. Support for City Club in Public Square comes from Thompson Hine and Common Ground. We appreciate your partnership and your generous support of our month-long series. Our forum today is also part of our Health Equity Series, sponsored by the St. Luke's Foundation and the Sisters of Charity Health System. You can join them in supporting City Club's mission by making a contribution online, becoming a member, or texting the word donate to 216-616-CLUB. That's 616-2582. John, thank you very much. 2582. 616-2582. The City Club will, uh, we've got a virtual forum tomorrow, our final uh, conversation with candidates, uh, with mayoral candidates, Dennis Kucinich, who will be asked about this notion of making Cleveland an anti-racist city. And Friday, we're digging into the state budget to ask, answer the question, what does this new state budget mean to you, and what does it mean to Will Tarter of the Center for Community Solutions, who's very excited about that program. Um, finally, Finally, um, we and uh, next Friday, the following Friday, the 23rd, we are back in person at the City Club. Chef Adam Crawford will be providing lunch, so you're going to want to be there. We have a, a conversation that I wanted to entitle Leadership, Cleveland, 
But the question is really, what, does le- what kind of leadership qualities does this moment call for, not only in the mayor's race, but also our congressional race, also our county executive race, also everywhere? You can see all the upcoming forums at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of our forum today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for braving the weather. I want to thank the weather as well for staying uh, dry. And um, we'll see you next week. This forum is now adjourned.